with you all. I wanted to start off asking you if you were to take a side as far as how you or, or your friends or those you interact with, how they approach Christianity, would you say that uh, normally Christianity is seen as a pretty normal, harmless, mundane sort of typical thing? Or is it almost fanciful? Is it just this incredible thing that no one could ever believe? Does it seem maybe you're a Christian and you fall into one of the camps, and maybe you're a non-Christian and you fall into one of the camps. It seems like not that big a deal, that it may be kind of irrelevant. You do you, I'll do myself. It's one religion among many. Or does it seem quite incredible? ridiculous of a story. Well, if you had to choose one, I think I would actually encourage you to choose the second one. And we're going to see why in this passage, because we have this psalm that is, uh, I didn't do the calculations, but I think it's by far the most often quoted chapter of the Old Testament in the New then, I mean, I don't think anything else really comes close. Maybe Psalm 110. But Psalm 118 is quoted in every gospel at least once. It's the stumbling block that, that we saw. It's quoted in Acts. It's quoted in First Peter. It's quoted in Hebrews. It's all over the place in the New Testament, this psalm. Whether it's on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters Jerusalem or it's in our passage when Jesus himself is quoting it. And that's all to say that this does get to the core of Christianity. That Jesus himself appears to many to be a stumbling block. And so that second approach, the, the at least we realize there is something worth stumbling over. If we had to choose one option, it must be that. That's what we're going to think about. Because once it becomes normalized, once Christianity becomes, yeah, of course, why not? I'll believe in Jesus. What's the big deal? Once we get to that point, we have lost a key, the, maybe the key aspect of Christianity and ultimately why God and his grace is so good, what he wants us to see here. So before we jump in, let's pray for God to show us. Lord, we do need your spirit to come and to speak to us. By your word, Lord. May your word come alive. May they not be just dead letters on a page, but that we would uh, meet you, the living Christ, in them. We thank you for this day, for this opportunity. We ask that you would uh, meet us where you know we need to be met. To the glory of Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. All right, well, looking at Psalm 118, um, it's a... a, Pretty long psalm, I realize, but it's, it's really a thanksgiving psalm that was written after this great victory in battle. And so the, the king, King David, or, or whoever would have written it, uh, is leading probably his community in a worship service, is leading them in this back and forth of giving thanks to God. He starts them off by exhorting everyone to say, His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord. Let everyone say, His steadfast love endures forever. 
And then he gives us some brief accounts of why exactly we should praise him, that God actually responded to his cry of desperation, that he was in distress, that he was uh, leading his own military in battle and was at the, the point of utter defeat and desperation, and God heard his cry. Therefore, we should rejoice that God's steadfast love endures forever. It's a, it's a great um, just habit for ourselves to remember what God has done in the past. And that's something of what he is doing here. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like bees. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. And then he actually quotes from Exodus 15 right when uh, Israel comes out of Egypt. After passing through the Red Sea, Moses leads Israel in song. The Lord is my song and my my strength and my song has become my salvation. Praise God, he's leading them to say, because he has been my strength when I had no other strength left. He remembers that the right hand of the Lord, meaning the the power, the, the strength of the Lord, does valiantly. And so what we have here is Israel thanking God for for saving them. In some battle, we don't know the exact context. Israel has finally uh, defeated some Gentile army. And in the Old Testament, that meant this Gentile army was about to uh, prove that Yahweh, God, the Lord God, is not real, is not powerful. And right at that desperate moment, Israel is saved. Okay? That, that's the, the cliff notes, if you will, of Psalm 118. And we're going to come back to it in a little more detail. But what Jesus quotes in the, in the Gospel of Matthew should really, really strike us. Because this is the end of the Gospel. This is uh, right before the, the final week. We're, we're really in... Uh, the shadow of the cross at this point in the gospel. And he's having this interaction with the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. So these are the guys who, if anything, they know they're Israel, they are proud to be Israel, they are the inheritors of David and his kingship and the, the interpretation of the law. These guys are the ones who, who know what they're talking about when it comes to the law. That's at least their perception. And Jesus is encountering them. And he's in conflict with them. And so, if he actually ends up quoting this psalm to say, which part does he quote? Did you guys catch it? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes. Now, why does Jesus quote that? He says, he says that once... The, once God the Father sends the Son, after sending a bunch of prophets to bring Israel back, after sending a number of different messengers to this vineyard, whom they, they kill or, or beat up, he finally sends his Son, and they kill him. And that Son, Jesus says, is actually the cornerstone that was rejected. That the builders, meaning the ones who were sort of in charge, they thought they knew what they were doing, 
they reject this cornerstone to say he is worthless. Just as the Gentiles treated David and Israel to say, we are rejecting you, you the supposed stone of this building. We are rejecting you. And it was when they rejected David and Israel that God saved them. Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you are acting like the Gentiles against Israel. You have become so blind in your sin that God in human flesh is standing here looking at you and speaking to you. And you have totally missed it. That rather than actually being in line with David and Abraham and all the guys that they would have proudly said are their ancestors, you are actually opposing their mission. Jesus is saying this is an incredible judgment. Israel. Because the stumbling block is, is a judgment. And that's, that's the first point I want to be clear on when it says the stumbling block, the cornerstone. The stumbling block is the judgment upon first the Gentiles and then on the Jews. The fact that they think they have no use of this stone, the image is, is building a temple or building, building some grand building, and they have a stone that they think will be of no use, they put it to the side, they reject it, the builders reject it. What ends up happening is that stone becomes not just a stone to be used, but the cornerstone, the one that lines up all the others. So the one they rejected becomes the most crucial one. And so at the moment of desperation for David, when it seemed like all else was lost and he was hopeless, that's the moment that God saves him saves Israel. From the Gentiles' perspective, it's the moment that clearly the Gentiles have won, clearly David is weak and is about to lose. That's the moment God moves. That's the moment God saves Israel and condemns the Gentiles. That's what Jesus is saying is happening to him. Now, What does this this mean? If, If if the stumbling block is the judgment on the, on the person that is rejecting it, saying, I have no use for this block. If it's a judgment because it shows that their perception was so misguided because it was actually the most important stone that they should have been, should have been using. That's exactly the way that the cross gets described. And Jesus gives us a hint here in that parable. Jesus shows us that that's precisely what is about to happen at my crucifixion. That when Jesus is condemned, what is being said there about the Romans and about the Pharisees? What is being said there is that the most obvious thing about someone on a cross is that they have lost they are hopeless. They have no business claiming any right to be anything. And the Romans and the, and the Jews and the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees sort of pushed them through the Romans. They obviously are the ones who have won. They're obviously the ones in power. And the person on the cross cannot speak back, is a traitor to the state, and is defeated. And so what ends up happening is that at the moment of their most sure confidence, most obvious truth, 
like someone being uh, uh, executed on death row, it seems so obvious that, that, that their life is, is now worthless, let's say. At that moment, that's when they are most deceived. Another way to think of it is that the, the very moment they thought, this is obviously true, this guy on the cross is lost, What's something obviously true for you in your life? It doesn't have to be something profound. I mean, if, let's think of the, the law of gravity. Something, if you drop something, it's going to fall. That is obvious. There's no one who seems to uh, try to refute that. You can say that so confidently and smugly uh, if you're talking to someone who tries to refute it. That's what the cross was for someone in this generation for the Romans and for the Jews. It's actually in Jesus' condemnation that their own condemnation gets revealed. Let me try to explain it with the help of uh, 1 Corinthians 1. Because what we're going to end up seeing is that God makes the stumbling block judgment upon them so that he may have salvation upon them. It's not just judgment. It's judgment at their most sure and confident moment so that he may have salvation upon us. Now this is what I mean. This is in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. Meaning it seems foolish from the outside. Just like saying, that person on the cross, if you're there in that moment, and if you say that person is God in human flesh, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that is absolute folly. Fool. It's it's stupid. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He took the crucified one to shame the most powerful government on earth. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And you may ask why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let's stop there for a second. And then we're going to go back to that passage. The purpose that he is moving us to in the very end is so that we can sing along with 118. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and it is no, there, it's not worth taking refuge in princes. It's not worth taking refuge in the strength of the world. I take trust and strength in God alone. 
so that no one may boast in the presence of God. So that no one may boast, he sends Christ to be our boast. This is, what, this is the way Paul ends this passage. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you think about that term, boast, or what do you stand on, how do you commend yourself in comparison to other people or in the presence of God, what is it that you would say, what is on your resume that you would say, that would, that would give you justification, that would give you pride or hope in comparison to someone else. That's what we boast in. That's what we rest in. In your, in your heart of hearts, even if you're not explicitly you know, uh, spouting all of these things, all these accomplishments that you've made, in your heart of hearts, what is it that you rest in? That you say, yeah, I really am better than those folks. I really do deserve a better treatment, or, or I really do deserve favor from God. Is it your wealth, or your power, or your academic achievements, or your reputation? You see that God actually needs, and we should want Him to, shame those things. We should want to see why those things are not worth trusting in. How are we going to see that? How are we ever going to see that the things that we think are most important and most valuable and most worthy to be trusted in, how could we ever think that those things are not that? That if anything, they are what, what leading us away God. How can he ever show us that? Well, that's what Christ crucified shows us. That if something was, if there was anything that was obvious to this educated, advanced society, it was that crucified one is defeated. If I could, this is something of a comparison. Uh, See if this helps. You can think of uh, 20th century Germany and what ends up happening, as we all know, is the Holocaust and this nightmare of, a, of an era. But if you know much about that history of what led up to it, was 19th century Germany was incredibly educated. And early 20th century Germany is incredibly educated. Now, there's a lot of economic devastation and stuff, but they had the cream of the crop of, of uh, literature and poetry and science and languages and all of these incredible academic achievements. And it ends up leading to the Holocaust. That the greatest education up to that point in Western civilization was in Germany, in the late 19th, early 20th century. It's an incredibly educated society. And they thought especially with the end of World War I, a lot of the West thought that that was the war to end all wars. We're making the world a better place now, baby. We are are on progress to a utopia. After World War I, that's what they thought. 
and it, it's led to the heart problem. Think about that. That what seemed to be at the height of human achievement and progress really showed us the depths of it, didn't it? It showed us the terror and the evil that ultimately lies inside all of our hearts apart from the grace of God. Well, the cross shows us this upside-down nature of the gospel. It's the heart of it, right? Because the cross shows us that all of our works, as Isaiah says, are like filthy rags, that if they are trying to gain us salvation, meaning they're trying to gain us a right to boast in the presence of God for eternity, they are worthless. That's the offense of Christianity. You don't have to go to some other doctrine on the outside of the core of Christianity. The heart of it says to every one of us, this world is upside down. The first will be last. You think the things that you trust in ought to make you first. They have the danger to make you last. They have the danger to show you that you... They have the danger to to get in the way to show you that you don't need God. But, in that face of absolute hopelessness, when it seems like not just our terrible deeds, not just like our obvious sins, God judges, but all the things that we try to do self-righteously, those too are condemned, and those too ultimately are hopeless because we deserve condemnation. In that moment of absolute hopelessness, that's also what the Christ shows, that God saves. That he has mercy. And that his mercy can go so deep. It's not just saving those who struggle with obvious sins. It goes much deeper to shame the wisest of the wise, Paul tells us to shame the strong of the world so that he may save them. So that he may save them. So that they may come to their knees like we did early in the service and say, I really need a Savior. And so, don't let this stumbling block as a judgment stuff be just pessimism. He does this so that he may save. He has condemnation upon all so that he may offer mercy to all. This is the upside down nature of the gospel. The first will be last. And the last will be first. <clears throat> Excuse me. This Psalm 118 is the end of a series called the uh, Egyptian Halal, which is just five psalms that they sang around the time of the Passover. And the time of the Passover also was the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And so there's thought that Jesus may have even sung Psalm 118 at the Last Supper before the cross, singing about the stumbling block that was rejected by the builders and become the cornerstone. Well, I want to look at this final point of what it means that the stumbling block not only is the cornerstone, meaning what everyone stumbles on, what seems foolish, becomes the method of salvation. That the Lord and King of all has actually 
come to serve and die, which seems so backwards and upside down, that this actually becomes the pattern of our life. The stumbling block is judgment so that it may become salvation and it becomes the cornerstone on which our life is built, the cornerstone that the church is built on. And what I mean is, is something of what we read, we heard read in verses 6 through 9. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. He's trying to get us to trust in no one and no thing other than God himself. That this becomes the nature of our life. And picking up with Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, when I came to you, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. We didn't have to rely on the methods of the world, the credentials of the world, because he came He decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and message message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that we can say with the psalmist as he ends, 27, 28 ends this way, The Lord is God, Yahweh is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. You are my God, and no one else is. Can you say that? Can you say that no one else but the Father and Lord of Jesus Christ is your God? That nothing else compares? That as Peter preaches the gospel, this is another one of those quotes in the New Testament from Psalm 118. He says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. And that may seem like a limitation to us. Why is there only one God? Why are you so stingy? Don't you see that that's, that's how we can have assurance? That's how we can declare to any and all people, no matter how deep their sin runs, no matter what their background is, that's how we can actually say, come to the Lord. Come to the Lord all of you, there is real hope and assurance. You don't have to go try out all of these other things, and you don't have to worry about your past and all these other things, because there's one place where you can go. He shamed everyone else to show us that, so that we can sing with this psalm that steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. We stumble uh, over this, but we should be stumbling over our sin. He's trying to get us to show that 
It's trying to show us that what is truly offensive is our sin. What truly we should be stumbling over is our sin. And so he turns things upside down in order to reveal that to us. And this really is all over um, Scripture, all over Christianity. I was reminded this weekend, uh, humility, which uh, obviously is a key Christian virtue um, and is sort of a virtue in today's society, but not really. Um, but in the first century, it was a despised word. It was a, you would mock someone who was humble because they valued pride and strength. If you think of the ancient Greco-Roman world, that's what Paul would commend us to be. It's something that was despised in his own culture when he says, be humble and be patient. And it fits this exact paradigm of being upside down, of being, if I'm really going to know Christ crucified, I'm not going to be able to have my hope in anything else. And that is really good news. God is trying to save us from trusting anything else. He does it through our sufferings. He does it through the ways that we may get marginalized in the world. And doesn't this fit with what Jesus said over and over? If you want to come and follow me, take up your cross. Die to yourself. Not because he's saying you need to get in a lot of pain. He's saying this so that you may have life. He doesn't say just die to yourself. Die to yourself so that you may have life. Die to what you trust in and rest in and lean on so that you can lean on something that will let you stand. It will end up being a cornerstone. That's what Christ came to do, and that's what he calls all of us to. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian here today, you have this ability to get past Jesus as a stumbling block. To say, everything else I've tried has been hopeless. Everything else that I have trusted in, I see now will let me down. But there's one who won't. I want to come to encourage you. Ask that honestly to yourself. As we start to come to this table, let's prepare to say, is this really what we feed on? Do we feed ourselves on the gospel of grace, Christ crucified, that may seem foolish, worthy of mockery to the world, but the saving power of God Christ Jesus. Let's pray.